You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 2 before we watch a brother of ours jump in this, these waters that are stirring over here and, uh, and be baptized. We want to remind ourselves on a day like today what it is we are celebrating, not just in physical life that has been added, but in the spiritual lives that have been added to our mix. What exactly is going on when we do a baptism like this? And let me just say this, in, in my years not just as a pastor, but just as a Christian and the folks that I've engaged with and gotten to walk with. And oftentimes I'll hear a lot of people's different faith journeys and their stories of what God has done. And when somebody is quick to confess Jesus Christ, I'm always quick to want to know more about that. And I ask the question typically of someone that I'm meeting of, man, what is your, what is your salvation story? Like how, how did the Lord bring you to faith? I mean, what is it that made you a Christian? And what's fascinating to me is in all the stories that I get to hear, being in the Southern South Bible Belt, I'm amazed at what is often not in those stories, namely Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, we can find ourselves sharing our own journey of faith and attributing the work of that faith to lesser things other than Christ. Good things, but lesser things. For instance, Oftentimes when I ask people, man, what makes you a Christian, I'll I'll hear an appeal to moralism, or I'll hear an appeal to a comparative morality that defines their being a Christian. This is what they'd put out as, well, man, here's the deal, man. Back in the day, I, I used to do drugs, man. I used to smoke some weed big time, man, and, or, and, and now I don't. I've been freed from that, or I used to I, I, I used to be addicted to this substance, and now I'm not. I used, to, I used to have filthy language coming out of my mouth, and now it's been kind of cleaned up. Or I've been, I've been uh, used to chase down sexual immorality, and, and now I'm just, I don't. And that's kind of my story. And, and when I hear that, I go, man, praise God for just the victories and the deliverances that he's given you. But that's really an appeal to your heritage, not to Christ. Like, and I've said this before, I grew up, I, I mean, I... I I grew up like having a lot of those same addictions and stuff and, and finding the same victories. But I can tell you, I've got atheist friends that could give me the same story who aren't Christians, who could tell me they too used to live this way and now they don't, but it's not Jesus that has done it. And so the hero of the story becomes my morality or, you know, I, I've never murdered anybody or I, li- I don't lie as much as that guy or that girl over there. And it's this, this comparative morality that becomes the hero of our story. It's really us. I know other folks that they'll not, maybe it's not an appeal to moralism, it's an appeal to like their Christian heritage. Well, I, I grew up in a Christian home, like I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian because I grew up in this Christian family. That's why I'm a Christian. And I go, man, praise God. What we just prayed for, for some of these families, these kids would get, really not know any days apart from that. That's what we pray for. That's what I wanted for my girls as opposed to the life that I grew up with. But at the same day, same time, that's that's not pointing to Christ either. Like saying I grew up in a Christian home, you've heard me say before, I grew up eating McDonald's. It didn't make me a Big Mac. The, the, the osmosis doesn't work that way in the Christian faith. Other folks, though, it's, a, it's an appeal to religion. Like if you listen to the story, it's like, well, I, I started going to church at this age. I got baptized at six. I you know, I give to the church regularly now, and I mean, I, I've been reading my Bible lately. I, I listen to KLTY. 
And, uh, and therefore, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I, I go, man, again, great. Those can all be wonderful things, but those are evidences maybe of salvation, but they don't equal salvation. See, all of those things may be good things, but they are not the gospel. That is not the good news that has actually taken us from death to life. Those are imposters that are used in the South as a veneer to cover one's own human pride and works. And in fact, rob from the glory that God wants. And so what I want to do just briefly this morning is I want to remind us in a very familiar passage for some, maybe it's foreign for others, of what our testimony is as the church. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is going to write to some believers at the church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, And he's going to remind them of three movements, where they came from, how they were saved, and what they were saved for. And this becomes, in a sense, the testimony of every Christian who has ever lived, even if your experiences are different. Theologically, this becomes our testimony. Look at this. Starting in verses 1 through 3, Paul reminds them of their condition before Christ. Every human being before Jesus saves them. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So let's break this down for just a moment here so we can be clear about our position before God, before Jesus Christ. The opening argument Paul makes is that prior to Jesus, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now, Paul doesn't mean we're physically dead, but spiritually dead. Formerly before Jesus, whether you came to Christ at two or whether you came to Christ at 102, formerly your body may have been alive, but your soul was dead before God. And you ask, why? Why was our spirituality, why was our spiritual life, why were we dead and alienated? He says, because of our trespasses and sins against the holy God. When you see those two terms, trespasses and sins, those are actually the same terms from two different angles. It's one coin, two different sides. Trespasses, I mean, think about that. That's, that's when you cross a boundary you shouldn't have crossed. You step onto somebody's property that you shouldn't have stepped onto. You are trespassing. You are going over a boundary that you were never intended to cross. That's what sin does. It is a deviation from the truth of who God is and what God has demanded, and you've gone where you're not supposed to go. But then he says, sins. And sins is the opposite side of that. Sin, as you know, is an old archery term. When the archer would pull back the bow and release the arrow, and they were shooting at a bullseye on a target, if he missed the bullseye, whether it was one millimeter outside of that bullseye, or whether he shot the neighbor's face right across from him, 100 feet away, whichever it is, the scorekeeper would yell out, sin, which means to miss the mark. 
means you didn't go where you were supposed to go. And so you see the two sides of this theologically. One is an act of commission, doing things that God said we weren't supposed to do. And then the other is an act of omission, not being or not doing the things that he said we were supposed to be. All of us, theologically speaking, the scriptures tell us this happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 2, when God put man in the garden and said, you shall eat from any tree in the garden you want, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what I love about just the thinking of even my own 10-year-old daughter right here, Hannah, this past week, she's like, what? Oh, Lord, he's using me. Yeah, I'm using you right now. She asked me the question, it was just yesterday, the day before, asking my wife and I in the car, why did God put that tree in the middle? Why didn't he just not have the tree all together? Isn't that more in keeping with the character of God? That is a brilliant question. Who in here has asked that question? I've asked that question. God, why'd you put that tree there? Wouldn't it have been great if you just didn't and we'd all be in a different, we'd be walking around naked and unashamed right now. We don't have a category for that, so we'll just leave that there. But nonetheless, you put the tree right there. Why? And here's the beautiful thing about God, because God doesn't want this relationship to be robotic. God gave us a tree because he wants us to know from the very beginning of human history, this relationship with our creator is going to be built on trust, that he is who he says he is. And as you know in that story, the first man, the first woman did not trust God. They listened to the deceiver who made them question the character of God, that God may be holding out on them, and they ate of that tree. And from that moment, the scriptures tell us sin entered the world. Romans 5 tells us that sin entered through one man and spread to all humanity. Like an infectious disease that cannot be stopped, sin has spread to all. And the result of eating of that tree, the result of sin and trespasses, is death. It's death. The Greek term for death you know this. It's fascinating. It's death. It's what it means. Dead, not living. Meaning everything within you was, that was formerly alive to God, now all of a sudden you are unable to change your estate before God. You and your own human strength and power, you and your own human deeds cannot reverse what has been done and what is now innate and natural within you. This sin. We have a theological term for it big boy, big girl pants right here. Put them on. Total depravity. Now, that's also a cuss word to some people, but let me explain. What total depravity is not is not utter depravity. Utter depravity is being as bad as you can be. By God's grace, there is a restraint on that for us. Total depravity means that every aspect about us, our hearts, our minds and our will are unresponsive to God apart from Jesus Christ. We are unresponsive. You know, a lot of us, uh, the old reformers used to use the illustration and Charles Spurgeon put it on the map when would say salvation was simply a divine assist by God. It's like the old illustration of a man and woman drowning out in the ocean and there's one person that's on the dock, that's God, and God sees you drowning, and he, he throws a life preserver to you so that you'll, you'll grab hold of his help, and you have a choice. You can take that life preserver and throw it back at him and reject it, 
Or you can grab hold and then swim your way in, and that's salvation. And Spurgeon was the one who stepped and said, no. That's not the theological term that's used here. It's not that you're doggy paddling and you need help. Theologically, because of sin, you were dead. You were at the bottom of the ocean floor, face down, lifeless. And even if a life preserver was thrown to you, you wouldn't know it because you're dead. What you need is not a divine assist. You need a God who's willing to swim down to the bottom of the ocean, pick up your lifeless body, and breathe new life back into it. And in fact, it's not even resuscitation. You need a whole new breath of life. And you can't get that on your own because you're dead. The Bible says that's the condition of every human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth apart from Christ. You say, well, how do you know? Well, Paul lists there in verses 2 through 3, three evidences that sin is doing just that to everyone around us. Three evidences of who you were before Jesus, according to verse 2 and 3. The first evidence, he says, is that you lived according to the course of this world, the pattern of this world. The world, by definition, biblically, is the organized system and culture around us that operates apart from God. Galatians 1, Paul called it this present evil age. Matthew 7, Jesus called it the broad path of this world that leads to destruction. And what Paul is saying here is you want to know that sin reigns right now? You want to know that sin is taking out humanity? Look at the world around you. Turn on the news and watch an innocent person shot last night. Turn on the news and watch victims of abuse. Turn on the news and watch a war that we don't even know who the good guy and the bad guy is right now. You just look around you, look in your own home, look in the mirror, and you'll see a broken culture. And everybody's got a different opinion about why the culture is the way it is, why there's rebellion and war and violence and injustice. The Bible says it's because of sin. Sin has affected everything. And so that's one evidence, is the the course of this world that's around us that everybody's living according to. The second evidence, he says right there in verses 2 and 3, is that we live according to the prince of the power of the air. Now this is the idea of the one who rules this world around us, Satan himself, who by his own power uses the world as his domain, seeking to control and influence sinners towards further disobedience, enticing every one of us to go where our flesh naturally wants to go. This is what the prince of the power of the air does. And Paul says, you're living in submission to him, not in submission to your heavenly father. That's why, in fact, he calls us sons of disobedience, because apart from Christ, we're not in God's family. We're in Satan's family. And then there's a third evidence of sin at work in our lives and the death that has resulted, and that is because of our own flesh when he says, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now some would go, man, that wasn't my testimony. I was saved at a young age and I just never really experienced that. And praise God for that. But you got to understand, theologically, Paul uses a word in here that is a Pauline phrase he uses over and over and over and is the word lived in it's not that you just 
engaged in those behaviors. It's not that you just struggled against those behaviors. Truthfully, the flesh is something we all still struggle with, even who have Christ reigning in our life. Like we live in these carnal tents, and they, we trip up over them. We have thoughts that come in that shouldn't be there. We have actions that we do that we wish we wouldn't do and things that we should do that we, we don't and wish we... I mean, it's just we wrestle with this, as Paul said in Romans 6 and 7. But, but the truth is, Paul's talking about one who doesn't just struggle with this, one who actually lives in the domain of this. You have your dwelling under king sin, and you have not yet been transferred over to a new king. You have a, an entire reign that's over your life. This is the present condition of where you live that marks you as an unbeliever theologically. Paul said in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh are evident, and he lists all kinds, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, and he just goes on and on down the list. He said these are just the things that are evident, let alone the ones that are hidden deep down within us. No, Paul tells us right out of the gate in verses 1 through 3, we, apart from Christ, were dead with three evidences that we were spiritually dead. One, the pattern of this world around us, that our willingness to follow it, your natural submission to the ruler that, that is reigning and empowering over that flesh, and then the impulse of that flesh that are our daily dwelling and true love. Now, here's the deal. We know this. If the scriptures ended in verse 3, we would all be hosed. This would be the worst message ever given at a church. We leave here hopeless. Welcome. It's Condemnation Sunday, everybody. Hope you had a great day, and we leave, right? But it does not end there. There's a reason why the gospel is the good news, right? Verse 4. And verse 4, y'all know these two words. You've been around a while, those that have. Martin Lloyd-Jones called these the two most important words in all of Scripture. But God. First of all, did you notice what it did not say? It did not say, but Shay. Did not say, but you. Did not say, oh, but my Christian heritage that I grew up in. Oh, but the fact that I'm morally better than the guy or the girl next to me here. Oh, it did not say, oh, but I went to church when I was a kid. Didn't say any of that. See, that would be you and I being the hero in this story. We are not the hero in this story. When it comes to salvation, it is but God. He is the only hero. The answer to man's problem is not going to be found in man because it's going to be provided 100% by God. You go, why? Why would God intervene for a bunch of rebellious people? Is it because they were more choosable than somebody else? Because they deserved it more than someone else? Other people might say, how could he choose me? After all I've done, after the rebellion that I gave towards him, like after where I, I've been even this past weekend, why would this guy love me for who I've done? Is it because of something in me or not about me? And the answer is no. God's love and God's salvific choice is not predicated upon your performance or your lack of performance. At the end of verse 4, what is it predicated upon? Him being rich in mercy because of the great love by which he has loved you in Christ Jesus. That is what it's predicated upon. Was it when you became lovable? Was it when you cleaned yourself up and then, then God now made himself known? You know, again, look in verse 5, even when you were dead in your trespasses. 
Even while I was dead in my trespasses and my sins, God showed up right in the middle of my own darkness and rebellion towards him. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our ungodliness, that's when God sent Christ to die for us. God, being rich with mercy and love, chose to intervene while we were still taking a bath in our own sin. This is Paul's way of emphatically saying, you had nothing to do with it. Your salvation is not a divine assist. Your salvation is not God throwing you a life preserver and you responding because you figured it out and nobody else did. Your salvation is you sinning against God and then lying face down on the bottom of the ocean floor. And your amazing, merciful, and gracious God plunging to the depths of the ocean to grab your lifeless body and give you what you could not give yourself. That is what God did. You go, how? How did that happen? Three things. Paul lists in the end of verse 5 to end of verse 6. Three ways that this was made possible because one, you were made alive with Jesus Christ. God knew the penalty for our sin was death. God knew that we needed a substitute to take that death for us in a way that would both preserve the justice of God of punishing sin and at the same time demonstrate the love of God for being merciful towards his his creation. And God knew that that substitute couldn't be just any other fallen human being to do that for us like a good martyr. No, because we all have sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No, he sent the only one who could be sent. He sent his own son. Jesus Christ, unblemished by sin, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous in every way, took on human flesh, lived this world with the temptations that we face and yet did not sin and then went to the cross to absorb the just punishment of God for our sin, taking it off of us and putting it on him. And by his blood that was shed on that cross, we are forgiven. Y'all, that is grace from beginning to end, which is why in some of your translations, they put that verse in parentheses It is by grace you have been saved. It has nothing to do with you. And then, secondly, he didn't just stay dead. He raised us up with him. Like through Christ's death, we are saved. But it's through his resurrection that we're given new life. That we walk in this newness of life with new breath to live with a new heart and a new mind and a new will that are now responsive to God. And alive to God in a way that we were not before, being transformed daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, thirdly, he says, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. You go, how can that be? He's seated up there. Last I checked, we're down here. This is the beautiful, already but not yet, picture promise of what Christ has bought for us. Christ, yes, right now is seated at the right hand of God. He's in the victor's chair And someday we will be there too. But even though we are not physically there right now, you need to know theologically, positionally speaking, 
through what Christ has already done for us, it's as if we're with him right now. That is how secure your salvation is. If you've ever doubted your salvation, Paul just told you you're seated in the victor's chair right now. It's as if you're already there. You're as good as saved as that. Why did he do it this way? Of all the ways that God could have chosen for us to receive this salvation, why did he do it in a way that had nothing to do with us but everything to do with him? You see the answer to that in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This whole thing was set up this way so God would get the glory. That's what makes salvation such a gift. If we went back to the old friend's gift illustration, and I went like Oprah or Ellen DeGeneres, 12 Days of Christmas right now on you, told you right now under one of your chairs, there's keys to a BMW. You, oh, I got it. Everybody freaks out. Somebody finds it. I got it. I got it. But then you have this overwhelming moment where you're like, wait a minute. You're giving me a brand new BMW that's outside. It's mine, right? Yeah, it's yours. It's a gift to you. That's too gracious. You can't do that for me. At least let me pay you something for it. I don't have enough money to buy a BMW, but I can tell you this. I got $1,000 in my savings account. How about I give you that just out of gratitude for you giving me this? And you go, no, you you can't pay me $1,000. You know why? Because for the rest of your life, you'll be able to tell people that you bought a BMW for $1,000. You go, okay, well, i got to give you something. I mean, here, let me see what I got. i got 10 bucks in my pocket. No, I won't take 10 bucks. How about a penny? Give one penny. No, because you'll own one penny of that, and therefore it's not a gift anymore. God sets this whole thing up for you in Jesus Christ so you will know And the world will know as a worldwide demonstration, it is his grace that saves you, not your works. And so, child of God, you rest in that gift. You cherish that gift. You did not earn it. It was given to you. So now live from it. Which is now, again, he summarizes everything in verses 8 and 9. How do you encapsulate this gospel testimony? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of your works. So you can't boast. If my salvation could really be earned by my works or my Christian upbringing or my church attendance or my ability to be better than the next guy or girl that's out there, then two things happen. Number one, grace is no longer grace. And number two, all the boastings in me. What makes grace grace is that it's undeserved, it's unearned. God gave it freely. And the ultimate result of this is that you would receive a new life so that you can now do what you could not do prior, which is verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship there is the Greek term poema. It's only used in two places in your entire New Testament. One of them is right here, and the other one is in Romans 1. It literally means that you and I, the salvation that we've received is God's masterpiece. It is his sonnet. It is his poem for the world to know what his grace can do to save. And so now when you ask me, what makes me a Christian? 
How would I articulate my faith? It's no longer me listing out my resume about boasting in myself and my accomplishments or the background that I came from. Right now, I've got one boast, and that's it. Jesus Christ saved me. I was a wretched sinner who was alienated on the bottom of the ocean floor, and my God, by his grace, he came down and he got me. And his son died for me, and he shed his blood for me, and he raised from the dead three days later so that I could receive the newness of life. And I've taken all that trust that I used to have and all that other stuff, and I've taken all that trust, and I've put 100% of it on Jesus now because only he's worthy for my salvation. And I'll spend the rest of my days proclaiming it's about his work. That's why one theologian said, when you get to heaven and you open up the Lamb's book of life, it ain't your autograph that's in there. It's the blood of Jesus Christ written over you. That's our salvation. So church, understand this. In just a moment, you're going to see a baptism up here. That brother steps in the water. You're going to hear the story of God's grace. You're going to see a visual picture of what has already happened in this brother's life, of who he was before. When he steps in those waters, it represents who he was before, before Christ saved him. And the fact that he's now put his trust in Jesus, was buried with Christ, and I've said it before, the reason we don't leave him under the water and send him on up to glory right then is because Christ came up out of that grave. And so he too is risen to walk in the newness of life. And y'all, that is worth celebrating. That is a miracle to understand the life that has been given by Jesus Christ. So you have permission, carte blanche, unrestrained, to celebrate today. Tap into your inner Pentecostal, whatever you need to do, and you celebrate. And I'm going to tell you this one girl that was baptized at the 9 a.m., she told me, I came here from Ohio. I have no family here. Nobody is here supporting me. This is the only family I have. If we don't celebrate, who else will other than the angels in heaven? We can't let them outdo us right now. We got to go for it, all right? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to celebrate this baptism. Father, thank you for the newness of life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that the scriptures have told us what our testimony is. Not one that has been accomplished by human works, but one that has been accomplished by the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would not only see in this testimony, but we would see in our own testimonies the glory of God, the salvation of God put on display so that we could herald it to future generations that they may know as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of the local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9, 11, and 530 and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.